As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. If you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes of the season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds on the one before. We've been on quite the tour of religious beliefs and connection, or rather disconnection from the land over the past 2,000 years, and how it all led up to my Swedish ancestors leaving their homeland on a Mormon immigration ship to the United States. But what did they lose when they set sail for America? And how did they manage to provide for themselves? Specifically, how did they feed themselves in this new land? That's what we'll be exploring in today's episode. But first, let me just say that if this season is inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, Remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Now, we left off on the last episode pondering what traditions Nils and Maria would have held onto from their Swedish homeland after settling in the Utah Territory. After traveling thousands of miles over ocean and prairie to reach their new home, what would they and the other Mormon converts have left to connect them to their ancestral customs? Their language, certainly. Apparently, the Scandinavian settlement in Utah in the late 1800s was so large that the services in their wards were led in their native tongues. In fact, the Scandinavian caucus was such a dominant and divisive political force within the church that... LDS leaders were forced to squash it around the turn of the century with orders for them to assimilate to the English language and the homogenous Utah Mormon culture. But the Scandinavian cultural influences continue even today in some Mormon towns. The accents in the Cache, San Pete, and Star Valleys still have a Scandinavian linguistic connection. Midway Utah continues to hold its Swiss Days celebration. Providence holds an annual sauerkraut dinner. Ephraim calls itself Little Denmark and is considered Utah's heart of Scandinavia with a festival on Memorial Day weekend each year. And on Christmas Day, some Mormons still eat lutefisk, sauerbraten, English plum pudding, or apple skiver, 
all traditional dishes handed down from their European ancestors. And so if there's one way to understand the lives of Mormon immigrants to Utah and connect back with them in some small way today, I believe it's through the language of food. For me, understanding how Nils and Maria and their children and grandchildren would have provided for themselves in this desert landscape helped me connect with them on a completely different level. In fact, I've never felt their presence as strongly this year as I have when I've been in my garden or the kitchen. And there's been some really funny situations that I know were orchestrated by them. Here's one that made me laugh. Early last summer, I started getting a nudge to get a grain mill. You know, the machine that you pour wheat berries into and it grinds them into flour. Now, I thought this was an odd item to have. I'm not a big bread baker. I maybe make one loaf a month for the two of us. And I don't really see a need to grind my own flour. But the prompting just kept coming in to get a mill. So I started looking them up and was taken aback by what they cost. These newer electric grain mills cost $300 or more. And I was like, no way, guys. I hear you, but I am not spending 300 bucks for something I'm going to use once a month. I looked into the hand crank ones. And honestly, I just couldn't see myself having the interest to hand mill a bunch of wheat berries every time I wanted a loaf of bread. So I dropped it. About two weeks later, I was scrolling on Facebook Marketplace, and what do you know? Someone was selling a vintage electric stone grinding mill for like 20 bucks. And I say to my ancestors, okay, I see you guys. I will reach out. So I send a message, and it's still available, and the gal asks if I can come to her work to pick it up. I agree to do so, and when I get there, I realize she works at the county 4-H office, which gives me a little giggle because I was in 4-H from the ages of 9 to 19 growing up. My dad was also in 4-H, and my grandma, the one who was excommunicated from the Mormon church, was a 4-H leader for both her kids and her grandkids. In fact, my grandparents' mailbox had one of those big metal signs attached to it for my entire life saying they were 4-H leaders. So anyhow, I go into the office and the gal has this mill on a rolling cart because it's so heavy. And she explains that somebody donated it to her office years ago so they could demonstrate grain milling, but it was just too heavy for her to carry around easily. So she wanted to pass it along to someone who could have some use for it. And then she refused my $20. I kept trying to pay her and she kept refusing as she pushed the cart to my car. And then the two of us had to load it up. I thanked her and I waved goodbye. And as I turned around to close the door on my car, I noticed the label on the mill. It was built in Salt Lake City. I mean, of course it was. The ancestors wanted to make sure that I gave them credit for this whole situation. And yes, I have been using it to mill my flour ever since. So perhaps Maria or one of my other ancestors was an excellent baker and wanted to show me her ways. I will say that my bread baking has gotten much better since I got that mill and started using sourdough instead of store-bought yeast. So maybe she's right there next to me in the kitchen, guiding my hands and whispering in my ear, passing her knowledge down to me from the other side of the veil. She and the ancient ancestor I met in the journey cooking in her little forest cabin. So I don't think this season and the exploration about my ancestors' experiences with the church would be complete without a discussion about farming and food in the Mormon pioneer culture. I've come to see what a big part of their lives would have been consumed by food and food production, and for all the beliefs and customs of that lineage that 
I might want to dismiss or discard, food might be the best way to bring some of what was good about their new lives in Utah into my life today. Because for all they left behind when they set foot on that boat in Sweden, their food ways would have come with them. The recipes that they knew by heart, the kitchen skills that had been handed down one generation after another, many of which have now been lost to us today in our desire to make food preparation something we barely have to think about. But to understand the unique flavor of Mormon beliefs around food and drinks, we have to start with the word of wisdom. The word of wisdom was a revelation received by the founder of the church, Joseph Smith, on February 27, 1833. The revelation warned the saints against consuming tobacco, wine, strong drinks, which apparently meant hard liquor, and hot drinks, generally understood as coffee and tea. The revelation recommended a diet of herbs, wheat and other grains, fruits and vegetables, and recommended consuming meat sparingly. Church members who followed these guidelines were promised that they would receive health, wisdom, and great treasures of knowledge, and that the destroying angel shall pass them by. In other words, following this revelation about their food and drink would be another way to ensure your access to heaven. Now, these guidelines might sound pretty straightforward and for today's Mormons are quite strictly adhered to. But if you go back to the earlier days of the church, there are some interesting loopholes in the word of wisdom that were openly understood by the early leaders and members. As Cody Nicone points out in his book, The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs, while the word prohibits alcohol in general, it does allow pure wine of the grape and of your own make, as well as barley for mild drinks. So, homemade wine and beer was a-okay. The word also permits all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. In fact, when speaking against hard liquor, Joseph Smith said, I spoke at great length on the use of liquors, and showed that it was unnecessary and operates as a poison in the stomach, and that roots and herbs can be found to affect all necessary purposes. Of course, this takes us back to the early days of the church, where Smith was making it clear that so long as church members were making their own wine and beer, they could lace it with the appropriate plants to get pretty much any effect they were looking to achieve. Now, as we know, things were a bit different a few decades later when Brigham Young and his group of saints arrived in Utah. If there were any psychedelic sacraments going on, it was happening in secret, or at least behind closed doors. But the Mormons were making wine, lots and lots of wine. In Brock Cheney's book, Plain But Wholesome, he explains that once Mormon pioneers settled in Utah, they continued making wine from all manner of plants. If it could be fermented, it was, including potatoes, watermelon, loganberries, grapes, apples, and sorghum molasses. Local papers even printed instructions for making beer wine at home. And it didn't take long for Brigham Young to corner the market on all alcohol availability in the territory. In 1860, he called on several families to undertake a mission to settle on the Virgin River and explore the cultivation of cotton, sugar, grapes, tobacco, figs, and olives. This area is in very far southwest Utah, really close to Zion National Park. 
and it would have been able to produce crops in the desert heat that wouldn't grow as well in the mountain valleys further north. Joseph Smith had in earlier days dictated that Mormons should not rely on outsiders for their wine, or any other products for that matter. And so Brigham was hoping that settlement in the southern portion of the territory could provide agricultural products they didn't otherwise have access to. And so as the Civil War ravaged the farms of the southern United States, Mormons found a good market for the cotton they were growing in their own southern region. But after the war, they needed a new cash crop. And so Brigham called Bavarian winemaker John Nagel to the region to construct a winery in Tokerville and teach the local growers how to make wine. It wasn't long before thousands of gallons of wine began spilling from southern Utah across the territory. Barrel after barrel was sent to Salt Lake as tithes from the southern growers. The Mormons began selling wine to the miners and other settlers passing through on their way to California, but there was still more wine that could be consumed. Church leaders implemented restrictions on the purchase of individual bottles of wine. If you wanted wine, you had to buy a five-gallon barrel. Now, as you might imagine, although the church insisted that their production of wine was only for the Holy Sacrament, medicine, and for sale to outsiders, many congregation members found themselves unable to maintain moderation, as suggested by the Word of Wisdom, and eventually the church curtailed the winemaking operation. But I have no doubt that home wine and beer making continued for many generations in the privacy of homes across the territory especially for the immigrants who'd come from countries with strong traditions around fermented drinks as a routine part of their diet. In fact, I've been reading the book Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers, which discusses the tradition of ancient fermentation rituals in many indigenous societies, and it's incredible the amount of nutrition received by consuming fermented beverages. The act of fermentation itself creates a powerful medicinal and nutritional beverage. For instance, lysine is increased 15%. Thiamine increases 300%, and protein content is doubled. This happens in all grains, sugars, and plants that are fermented. Yeast synthesize B-complex vitamins in order to foster the fermentation process. The yeasts also contain essential trace minerals like selenium, chromium, and copper in amounts similar to fresh fruits and vegetables. And the yeast is also high in protein, so a protein source is created where none or little existed before the fermentation process. So where our modern-day eye sees homemade wine and beer as simply an alcoholic beverage, our ancestors understood it as an important source of food, vitamins, and minerals, especially if they were living in a time when food was scarce or at a time of year where certain foods were unavailable. Vitamin B12, so critical to our health and well-being, cannot be produced by our bodies. The only whole food source of this vitamin is through the consumption of animal products, like fish, beef, eggs, pork, or chicken. But many indigenous cultures around the world subsist on a primarily vegetarian diet. How did they do that? Fermented beverages. Rice diets lack riboflavin and thiamine, which yeasts make plenty of. Maize diets are low in niacin, which are also made by yeasts. And many diets are low in vitamin C, especially in the winter months. But fermented beverages contain tons of this vitamin. Pretty cool, right? Now that said, Joseph Smith's channeling on this may have been more spot on than he realized. 
unless some of the traditional wisdom around sacred fermentation was passed down to him, and perhaps it was. Because in most indigenous cultures around the world, including rural European drinkers in Scandinavia, their fermented beverages weren't filtered and clarified like the wine or beer we would buy in a store today, or probably even in 1800s America. Because those traditional drinks kept the yeast in the brew, which is what ensured all of those health benefits. So my ancestors, even if they hadn't been making their own fermented drinks in Sweden, likely had a memory of one of their ancestors doing so, or maybe someone in their village. And it was a very sacred process. Not because of the alcohol it produced, but because of the high-quality nutrition it produced, which may have helped them through times of famine or the long, dark winter months when food was scarce. Learning more about the fermentation methods from parts of the world your ancestors came from may be a beautiful way to connect with them through the foods and plants that they knew. Of course, mead, made from fermented honey, is one many of us are familiar with, but there are fermented drinks made with all manner of herbs and fruits that you can wild forage or grow in your garden that your ancestors would have known. Plants like mugwort, elderberry, juniper, whorehound, calendula, and yarrow all have traditions as healing fermented drinks in different parts of the world. But okay, back to the Mormon pioneers, because while they did learn some of the local foods that grew in the harsh desert landscape from the indigenous people when they first arrived and before their crops were established, most everything they wanted to grow or eat, they either brought with them over the prairie or imported after they arrived, if they could. But regardless of their location or circumstances within the territory, for many, many years, the log cabin or home would have been situated around a stone hearth set into the floor. Whether a fireplace in the earlier days or a cast iron stove brought by the railroad some years later, all of the cooking was done in the fireplace over an open flame and hot coals. At their most basic, these kitchens would have been outfitted with a frying pan and a Dutch oven, along with a few specialized tools for hearth cooking, like long-handled spoons, ladles, and spatulas. With just a frying pan, the Pioneer family could prepare biscuits, pancakes, corn oysters, porridge, bacon, and more. The addition of a Dutch oven, or bake kettle with a lid, meant they could make a loaf of bread. Now, you may be thinking that in the late 1800s, that's how everyone cooked and had been cooking for hundreds or even thousands of years. Nothing new for these pioneers, but that's not quite so true. Right around the time that Nils and Maria stepped off their immigrant ships in New York, Thomas Edison was beginning to light up the city with electricity. The wealthy elite there were building opulent mansions on Fifth Avenue, and the French style of cooking had become popular. Servants were needed in the well-to-do homes to assist with all of the elaborate dishes and kitchen chores. Kitchens had changed dramatically by the mid-1800s, even if you didn't have a lot of money. Cast iron stoves were far more efficient than cooking over a hearth, and as the century continued, wood fires gave way to cooking with coal, and then gas, and maybe even electricity. And if you lived in a city, you certainly weren't growing and butchering your own livestock, planting fruit trees, or growing tomatoes. Even in Victorian times, people would buy their meat, salted and smoked to preserve it, of course, from the local butcher, and groceries, hardware, clothing, boots, and literally anything else you might need would be purchased at the general store. If you lived in a more rural community, you might have had a few chickens for eggs and a cow for milk and cream. 
even in the late 1800s, most people living in the more civilized eastern states of the U.S. or major cities in other parts of the world were not providing for their own needs. They had a job where they made money and purchased their food and supplies at the stores in town, just like we do today. And I think it's important to make that distinction because those early pioneers in the Utah Territory had to start from scratch with skills they probably hadn't learned in their childhood. I mean, they probably knew how to churn cream into butter and preserve jams and jellies, but it's unlikely they all knew how to properly butcher a pig or build a log cabin from scratch. We like to think of the back to the land movement as happening in the 1960s and 70s, when nearly a million young Americans decamped from the cities and suburbs for a simpler life in the country during mass social upheaval and war. The baby boomers had led what we might say were easy lives compared to their parents who had endured the Great Depression and World War II, or their grandparents who had lived through a war and an economic depression of their own. But by the time they came of age, the threat of dying in Vietnam or from a nuclear bomb launched by some unhinged government leader was very real. And after taking some plant medicines of their own, they realized they may not want the life and the jobs that awaited them after receiving their college degrees. Progress and technology and a good life in the suburbs maybe wasn't as picture perfect as it was supposed to be. And my sense is that many people who struck out on their own from large cities to pioneer on the American frontier a century earlier were feeling equally disillusioned by the Industrial Revolution. In the early 1800s, the promise of science and technology to reclaim the time and energy it took to painstakingly craft goods was almost too good to be true. New tools and machines seemed to speed up time. Large-scale commercial farming was possible for the first time, feeding more people with less labor, which sent the peasant class into cities looking for work as industrial laborers. Wind and water mills were replaced by coal-fired steam engines. Spinning and weaving of textiles, which were tasks that had always happened in rural homes, was now being done by power looms and carting machines. Artificial dyes, explosives, solvents, fertilizers, and medicines, including pharmaceuticals, were available for the first time through industrial chemistry. I mean, it must have all been very exciting at first. You were no longer at the mercy of the weather to determine if you would feast or starve in the coming winter months. You no longer had to milk a cow twice a day or break ice in the pig's water trough all winter. In short, life was easier. You could move into the city, get a job with set hours and wages, and maybe even have some leisure time each week. You could pick up your meat and vegetables and maybe even some exotic fruits imported from around the world at the corner market. It must have felt like the whole world was opening up, especially for the peasant class in Europe. At least at first. Because within a generation or two, it was probably pretty clear what they had really given up. And that was a whole lot of control over their day-to-day -day lives. They now had to trade their time for money. And their money didn't go very far. In less than 100 years of technology and progress, the water and soil and air was horribly polluted. People were piled into tenement housing with unsanitary living conditions. And the children and grandchildren of the Industrial Revolution wanted out. 
They wanted to return to a simpler time, just like the baby boomers would do a century later. And I might argue the same way many people feel today about the technological revolution. When the promises and sparkle of something new fades into the reality, humans tend to tap into an innate knowing or ancestral memory that didn't used to be like this. And it doesn't have to be like this now. And every time we reach this point in our collective evolution, some percentage of the population tries to find their way back. And that's my sense about Nils and Maria, and many of the other pioneers of all backgrounds and religions. Joining the Mormon faith just gave thousands of people the vehicle they needed to get out of whatever situation they were in and go back to the old ways. So with all of that background and context, I think it's pretty clear that part of why the Mormons survived, and maybe even thrived in those early years, is not only in having a shared vision, but in having a community to lean on and share skills with. They didn't have to learn everything. They didn't have to be entirely self-sufficient. They were community-sufficient. Nils was a shoemaker when he left Sweden. And when I found a variety of Ogden, Utah city directories from the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was listed as being a shoemaker there as well. He took this specialized craft that was likely being replaced by the machines of the Industrial Revolution and took it to the frontier, where it was still a useful trade. And he likely exchanged shoes for many of the goods he and his family needed in those early years. Maria likely learned whatever skills she needed for the frontier from her neighbors and sisters in the church. Because the expectation from the church was that every family would grow as much food as they needed. So in order to have anything to cook at all, they first had to plant gardens and orchards and procure livestock. As Brock Cheney points out in his book, Food begins with agriculture. Cream for coffee and milk for gravy, flour for bread and the yeast to rise it, and the fruit for pie or pudding begins with a cow, a wheat field, an orchard, and an irrigation ditch. As the Mormons viewed outsiders with suspicion, or more like downright evil, they spent a lot of energy attempting to be free of them. The day the original pioneering party arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, they put a plow into the earth and planted potatoes they had carried with them over the prairie. Within a week, 50 acres were planted in buckwheat, corn, oats, potatoes, turnips, beans, and other garden seeds. Seeds were carried not just from the eastern states, but from countries around the world, and a huge diversity of fruit and vegetable varieties were grown in Utah. The biblical prophecy from Isaiah 35.1 that the desert shall blossom as the rose was taken to heart and often repeated by the early saints. And so their beliefs were etched in the ground as they worked to cultivate the land, construct fences, dig irrigation ditches, and build their homes and gardens. Every act of gardening, grafting, weeding, and harvesting was potentially a holy act and part of the process of creating a sacred space. Irrigation was critical to the settlers' success, and as we discussed in the last episode, the labor was too much for individual families to do on their own. It was expected that each community would work together to dig what was necessary to channel and divert the mountain snow runoff into plots of farmland to feed the growing number of saints arriving in Utah. Every single home on its large lots featured an abundance of fruit trees and a backyard full of raised beds for vegetables, herbs, and medicinal plants. 
Some of the early garden plants included roses and geraniums, nasturtiums, tansy and sunflowers, as well as peaches, vines, apples, and watermelons. There were also potatoes, onions, cabbages, cucumbers, and tomatoes, with wheat and hay growing in the outlying farm plots. These settlers believed that when the world was perfected after Christ's second coming, they would still have the farms, orchards, and flowers that they were working so hard to cultivate. These would still be their homes and gardens in heaven. Now, personally, I'd like to imagine that heaven is outside the bounds of my imagination here on earth. As beautiful as it is here, I guess it's hard for me to grasp the idea that I'd still be living in my same house with my same belongings and my same neighbors forever and ever into eternity. Honestly, as nice as it all is, it seems a little boring for eternity. But regardless, that's what my ancestors believed. That the work you were doing in your home and your garden to build the city of Zion was the necessary work to prove you were fit for the kingdom of God. Ultimately, meals in the Utah Territory followed the seasons, with animals harvested in the fall and salted down to provide meat through the winter months. Gardens opened each spring with peas and radishes. Settlers also foraged for sago bulbs in the hills. Lettuce dipped in salted vinegar water was enjoyed from spring into summer before beans and corn ripened. Tomatoes, cabbages, potatoes, and carrots were all harvested in the fall. Settlers ate fresh fruits and vegetables in the warm months and preserved foods to carry them through the cold ones. Vinegars, sauerkraut, and other ferments bubbled away in the cellar, aging through the winter. Yeast would have also been an important item to procure after arriving in Utah, not just for the aforementioned fermented beverages, but also for bread and other baked goods. Now, if you have a sourdough starter in your house today, you know this is a living, breathing being that must be cared for just like the plants in your garden. Now, since I don't bake bread every day, I have the luxury of popping the starter in the fridge where it will happily wait for me. But the pioneers would have had to keep feeding or using their yeast on a regular basis and have a spot to keep it at just the right temperature to keep it alive. However, Brock Cheney explains in his book that many Utah settlers relied on a designated proprietor for homegrown yeast in their town to solve that problem. One person in the community would always keep a container of fresh yeast bubbling away, and anyone could stop in on baking day for a ladle of yeast from her crock. Customers would pay for the yeast with small quantities of flour or sugar, food items used to feed the living yeast colony. So in reality, it was a yeast crock tended to by the community that lived in one particular location where it happily grew from week to week, while the women would always have yeast at the ready for bread, biscuits, pancakes, and quick breads. An idea I think we should definitely bring back in our modern communities. Ultimately, food preservation would have been one of the most critical skills for these early pioneers to have. Once the settlers found success with their agricultural pursuits, they likely would have found themselves overwhelmed with produce. Tomatoes will rot if you can't eat them fast enough. A dairy cow will give you six gallons of milk every day. A dozen chickens can yield that many eggs daily, and none of them will last without refrigeration. Even with refrigeration, they don't last all that much longer. So large portions of the fruit crop would have been dried every summer and fall, not only for eating, but also for trading for things like flour and machinery in parts of the territory that weren't as abundant in fruit trees. 
Peaches, pears, apples, and plums could also be simmered in molasses for several hours and then stored in large barrels and crocks for the winter. Beef, pork, fish, and venison were salted to preserve them until they could be soaked and reconstituted to eat. Some families would even go to Utah Lake prepared with salt and barrels to process the fish they caught right on site. Home-cured hams, corned beef, bacon, and sausages were made after the hog harvest in the fall, and pickles and sauerkraut were fermented from the garden harvest. More fermentation was done with gallons and gallons of fresh dairy to make cheese, yogurt, and clabbered milk. To say that the Mormons prided themselves on their agricultural achievements would be an understatement. Their bounty was celebrated at community feasts and county fairs. Even Brigham Young entered his produce to show it off. On July 24, 1849, just two years to the day that the saints arrived in Utah and planted those first rows of potatoes, they hosted a public feast in the fort at Salt Lake City. In remembering the occasion, one of the original settlers said, We partook freely of a rich variety of bread, beef, butter, cheese, cakes, pastry, green corn, melons, and almost every variety of vegetable. Large sheaves of wheat, rye, barley, oats, and other productions were hoisted up on poles for public exhibition. And look, as a longtime gardener, I can tell you this is a really big deal. Even with all my modern resources and conveniences, I've had gardening years be a near-complete loss for one reason or another. So to arrive in the desert with seeds they'd carried from other regions and climates, figure out how to improve the soil, divert the water, contend with pests that had never seen a delicacy as tasty as the garden plants they were growing, and then to have a huge feast after their first full summer in the Utah desert is quite the feat. They weren't just celebrating their abundance of food that would carry them through the coming winter, though. They were celebrating the fact that they didn't starve during the first one. That being said, this was not the success of the individual, but that of the community. When they worked together and combined their knowledge and efforts to work as bees in a hive, they had an abundance of success. You can see why many community celebrations were centered around feasts. These Mormon celebrations verged on becoming a religious sacrament. After all, surplus food is a sign of God's blessing. Now, regardless of your views on God and food, I think you can see why I've found so many connections to my ancestors through learning about their food ways. And probably why, when we're feeling so disconnected from where modern culture is headed, whether in 1860, 1960, or 2020, we seek connection with the land. And in doing so, we can't help but connect with the food and medicine that we can grow from the soil right in our own backyards. Or feel the call to have a few chickens, or a family milk cow, or learn how to make sourdough bread. When we carry the abundance into our kitchens, we can't help but wonder how to preserve what we can't eat fresh. Which calls us back, again and again, to the skills of our ancestors. Animal husbandry, plant cultivation, fermentation, preservation. There's something about making these connections on a soul level that a frozen lasagna or a loaf of bread from Costco will ever be able to satisfy. But the idea of self-sufficiency has been proven to be a mythical goal time and again. Mills and Maria were able to do it, kind of, through the heavy-handed control of the Mormon church. But 
what was built through the church did not, in fact, last for generations. Ultimately, the church took far more than it gave, and subsequent generations could see that. I think about the two of them growing up in Sweden under a different heavy-handed church regime. It must have been an exciting time when the government began to allow its citizens to join other churches besides their national church, to hear missionaries with different ideas, different promises, including the promise that they would be reunited in heaven for eternity with their children who had recently died, to be caught up in the excitement of living off the land like their grandparents had, in a like-minded community where everyone was working together with the same goals. They could grow their own food, have their own animals, build their own little house, and live out the remaining life waiting for Jesus' return. It sounds like quite the utopia. So, yeah, I really do get it. It was just as alluring as dropping out of college and starting a commune with your friends in the 1970s. But for most people, that ended the exact same way infighting among group members, leaders who became drunk with the power of controlling people, sexual, physical, and mental abuse, the list goes on and on. I mean, how do you create an interdependent community that's not a cult? I know there's some wonderful groups and organizations that are out there trying to figure that out, but I've watched enough cult documentaries to know that they all start out the same. Fun, exciting, and too good to be true. Give them a few years, and somehow or another, you end up with a Brigham Young or Warren Jeffs or Keith Raniere or David Koresh or Bikram Chowdhury or Rajneesh. Those are just the ones I can think of off the top of my head. Ultimately, isolation, even within a community of people who hold the same values of you, is never a great idea. Any ecosystem flourishes with diversity. Just like a monoculture of corn or soybeans isn't healthy for the soil or water or pollinators in a given area, a monoculture of people all committed or forced to follow a single rigid set of beliefs will ultimately create sickness. Greater diversity leads to greater stability. And I'll leave that to you to interpret as you wish for your own views of being in relationship with the land and the people who you consider to be your community. I do want to leave you here with some thoughts from Tara at Slowdown Farmstead. Now, if you're not already following her on Substack, you're missing out on not only her wealth of knowledge as a farmer and a nutritionist, but also on her beautifully crafted weekly essays that help me to find my own place in relationship with the land while living in this modern technological world. She and her husband have just embarked on an effort to eat only from their farm for an entire year. And even at that, she admits that the idea of self-sufficiency is a bit of a fantasy. She says, The longer I live this homesteading life, the more I realize that we are simply not meant to do it all. At least, not alone. The times they may require it, but traditionally, it wouldn't have been two or three people raising all of the meat and the vegetables and all the fruit and working the fields and moving the animals, and watering, and milking, and churning, and culturing, and fermenting, and smoking, and building structures, and cutting wood, and milling that wood, and slaughtering, and butchering, and cooking multiple meals a day, while also helping neighbors, and being a good contributing member of society. It just couldn't be that way. Communities came together to accomplish tasks. 
large families stayed together to accomplish what needed to be done for their survival. Exactly. We've been convinced by society that we should want to immediately move out of our parents' home at the age of 18 and set up our own homes while supporting ourselves and children of our own. But in order to do that, we've had to outsource literally everything. Convenience foods, laundry service, child care, lawn care, housekeeping, because we literally cannot do it all and work full-time jobs. It's literally impossible. And my guess is that Mills and Maria were feeling the same. Life may have looked different, but the disillusionment with the system they were stuck in probably felt awfully similar. And so back to the land they went. Back to land they didn't know, that also didn't know them. Back to the land that someone else's ancestors tended, because there was none left for them to tend in their own homeland already gobbled up and doled out by the wealthy and privileged. So they wanted a simple life, plain even. Brock Cheney's book title, Plain But Wholesome, comes from a quote from pioneer Eliza Brockbank Hales, who said, Our food was plain but wholesome. We had milk, homemade bread, vegetables, dried fruit, and meat. Our home-cured hams were tops, We also had a barrel of corned beef and a good root cellar for potatoes, apples, vegetables, and so on. And I would say that compared to some of the foods we have available today that clobber our taste buds with man-made chemical constituents, those foods do sound plain. But one of Tara's essays earlier this year changed my mind about that. She talked about the revelation that was long-braised beef cheeks, a sublime oxtail, Roasts of every kind cooked low and slow with the bone left in to remind us how delicious well-grown meat can be without the need for fancy ingredients or exotic flavors. That what we might call simple peasant foods are full of flavor and rich, glorious fat. Beautiful food that only needs a gloss of fat and a sprinkle of salt to let it shine. That to raise really healthy animals is to raise really healthy food. And to raise really healthy food is to raise really delicious food. Every cut corner delivers a diluted result. We are in an altered state, eating altered foods. And our taste buds no longer appreciate the wild, juicy, sweet, and tangy flavor of an orange. Or meat without barbecue sauce. And I realize that when we see the list of food items that Eliza outlined, like milk, bread, vegetables, and meat, It does sound a little plain and boring. But fresh milk from the cow is full of flavor compared to pasteurized, homogenized milk from the store. And no packaged sliced bread can hold a candle to homemade bread warm from the oven. Potatoes from the garden would have been cooked with lard from the hog, and tangy sauerkraut from the barrel in the middle of a cold winter would have been an explosion of flavor on your tongue. These pioneer foods were highly nutritious, highly delicious, and homegrown. And it's difficult for us to recreate these flavors and that quality today, although I think we can try by supporting our small local farmers' role. There's still a few left to buy from. And maybe growing a few heirloom varieties of veggies in our own backyards. You might be surprised at which ancestors show up to help you find your own way back to the land. And you never know, they might even gift you a flour mill. So with that, I will leave you to go discover your own ancestral connections to the land through their foods.
Thanks for listening this week. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.